Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one stop for board game news and reviews. This week, game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly will review a cooperative game and have a related design discussion. Hey, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. What's up, everybody? Time for some post-apocalyptic fun. You know, Peter and I love it since we designed a game in that setting. Waste Nights is our topic today. And they use fuel, and they use ammo, and they use medkits. There's another game that does that, too. Look at this plagiarism. Who, who would ever think of having fuel in a game like set in a kind of a Mad Max post-apocalypse? That is outright thievery, sir. <laughs> <laughs> well, and one of my points may have to do with those items. So we're, we're not going to get into the review quite yet, but I'm pretty excited about our design discussion, too, which is we're going to talk about flavor text and story. And how much is too much was what I added in there as a, uh, a final caveat. Yeah, and, and this is such a funny topic because uh, for those who watch the YouTube channel, within the space of like maybe two weeks, I covered uh, Sleeping Gods along with Colin, uh, Solomon Kane, and Waste Night Second Edition. And all of those just had me like narrating for what felt like hours. <laughs> so it, it like became like a book on tape for a while there. Well, you know what? I think you found your second career. No, I didn't say it was out. good. I didn't say it was quality. I said I did it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But hey, uh, Peter, have you been playing anything cool recently? Yeah. You know, I, I pulled out an old favorite. So it was something, it was funny because I was looking for content for the stream channel and I said, what is one of my favorite games that I like to play by myself? You know, when I have some downtime that I could throw up there and play when I don't have anything else to play. And I was like, oh, Gaia Project, my number one solo game of all time. I haven't played that in probably six months. So I pulled out the physical copy, put it on the table and played it. And I noticed that the TTS implementation is really good too. And I played it and I'm like, oh my gosh, I remember why this game is so good. So I got excited to play it on the stream channel. And then I got like 10 things coming down the alley this week. So uh, it's not going to make it on the stream channel this week, maybe next week. But I, I just love that game. Now that, that is a great one. That might still be my favorite of the Automa Factory's work you know, Morton and his crew. And the funny thing is, like, they are probably most famous for doing all of the Scythe uh, solo variants, or not, sorry, not all the Stonemeyer solo variants, including Scythe, including and, like, Scythe, Wingspan. Right, yeah. But the game that they did, not for Stonemeyer, I think is still my favorite of a solo game, because I think uh, it's, I think it's uh, one of the best games, like, uh, an amazing design, so probably better than any of the Stonemeyer designs that are out there. Well, it's funny, we say that, and then we've never played it together, I don't think. Maybe we played it once together. Well, that, that's that's how good the solo is, <laughs> I guess. I, I, I never need you, man. Just get out of here. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I love it solo. I love it multiplayer. That's just a fun game. I view it as a 4X game, and it's never built that way, right? But when you think about it, you're going around, you're exploring, you're like terraforming things. Uh, I mean, I guess the exploring is the one that's a little, and the exterminating too. So maybe it's a yeah. 2X game. Two, two, uh, X, two, two Xs are good enough if they're done well. Yeah, but the big thing about it is the tech tree. I love the tech tree and how you build differently based on your race and things like that. And and not only just what race you're given, but also what victory conditions are on the board. You're going to need to build each race differently depending on those factors. It's funny because it came from Terra Mystica, which had those same five tracks, but they were like God tracks or whatever. And they had like nothing to do with each other. Like that was the hardest part for me about Terra Mystica is like those tracks were a complete departure from what the rest of the game was. And they never really made sense to me. So I kind of ignored them. 
And when I play Gaia Project, it's funny because it's like my favorite part of the game. And every track is very focused and you know what you're getting when you go up them. So for me, that was the big change from Terra Mystica to Gaia Project was those tech tracks. They make a lot more sense to me there and they're, they're just more thematic. And it's my favorite part of the game. Yeah, and I've, I've still never played Terra Mystica. And based on like what you and Jerry have said about it compared to Gaia Project, I don't really feel like I need to. <laughs> you know? Sure. And the funny part is I like the fantasy theme better, but it doesn't matter. I mean, better gameplay is better gameplay to me. Yeah. What else have you been getting into? I know you uh, you did a stream on a uh, co-op variant for one of your favorite games. Yeah, so Keyforge Adventures is, I love Keyforge, definitely one of my favorite games of all time. And uh, they came up with a solo mode for it. Future Peter here. I say solo a couple times, but Keyforge Adventures is actually a cooperative game for one to three players. And they're coming out with another one, at least one more adventure, which is going to be very different. That new adventure came out just this past Friday, although I haven't had a chance to try it yet. So Keyforge Adventures, the first one is all about fighting. And I mean, I made a mistake introducing it to you and Jerry. I was like, do you want to play easier or normal? Knowing full well that normal was very hard. And I even said that to you. I was like, normal is going to be a challenge. And it, it definitely was. It kicked you in the butt. So the thing about Keyforge is because there it comes with pre-constructed decks, there's definitely different power levels. Now, the interesting thing is what's a good Keyforge deck for a multiplayer game is not necessarily what makes a good Keyforge deck for these solo adventures, especially the first one, it's all about fighting, whereas Keyforge itself is all about forging keys. And so you need very specific decks for this. And I gave you a great deck for it. And Jerry's deck was awful <laughs> for for what we were playing. So he, he definitely just got beat down the entire time and, and did not enjoy it as much as he should have or could have. So I, I mean, we all do this, right? We all love games. And we're like, oh, I'm going to teach it to you on a hard mode because I want you to to feel the challenge there. Yeah, that was a stupid idea. I should have just given you guys easy mode and, and let you have fun with it as it was. Well, it also felt to me like it would probably play better with one to two players because the bad guy's kind of ramping up every turn, like after each player's turn. So it did have the potential to kind of like flood the board a bit with, uh, yes. you know, all three of us and like each of us kind of slowly building up while they were building up at like triple the pace in a way. Uh, but no, I, I still think like the core was fun. Yeah, I just prefer to play on easy difficulty one or two player next time to see like what it really looks like. Well, and that's the thing. You can experiment with different decks and things like that. And if you're playing easy mode, you're probably still going to win or at least it'll be close. Uh, I, I think normal mode and into hard mode is really meant for people who are like really min maxing, taking the perfect deck to beat it if you want to ramp up the challenge. So I would say if you're going to try Keyforge Adventures, definitely start on easy mode. It's not really easy mode. I would call that normal for my tastes. And then if you got a combination that just wipes over it, then increase the difficulty from there. How about you, Mike? What you been playing? Oh my gosh, man. I've I've like built up all of these videos for the channel and we've just had so many things to cover that I haven't like been able to get them up yet. So I have like five uh, games just like hanging out in the wings until I have space for them. But I'll just talk about a couple. First of all, you might have seen Peter did a stream with me kind of advising of Hoplomachus Victorum. That's the new solo only campaign for Hoplomachus. And I always thought Hoplomachus was pretty good. Uh, this is a chip theory game, kind of like tactical arena combat game. I never liked it as much as Too Many Bones or Cloudspire. But Victorum, I think, with the campaign definitely ramps it up. I would say that now it might be biting at the heels of those, or at least it's better than it was. And I had a lot of fun with it. How about you, Peter? You've played it a few times now. How are you feeling about it? 
I liked it a lot. I actually think they stole some stuff from Too Many Bones, their own game. Oh, for sure. It feels like you have all these little mini fights. And, you know, they're they're variable. But the nice part, unlike something like Too Many Bones, where you just, like, go in and you have no idea what's going on. And some people prefer that. You actually can see the fight coming up ahead of time and choose to ignore it or not. And you could choose to go to spaces to get certain cards. So there's almost a more puzzly aspect of that decision making. But every single encounter feels different. And then I would say every encounter is probably going to feel different based on the location of it as well. So even if you had a fewer number of encounters, the location you're having the encounter at matters because the locals are going to be different. So the the things you're fighting against are going to be different. The things that you have yourself and the things you'll be able to recruit will be different. So I, I think it's a good combination of the environment you're in, the enemies you get to fight, and those randomly come out each game from the from the bag. And the different encounter, like what it's asking you to do. So I thought it was a really neat combo of things that you fight against. And, you know, for me, it was it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And a nice part is, I think, the the themes of both Too Many Bones and Hoplo match what they're doing, because in Too Many Bones, you're like traveling through an unfamiliar place and getting like ambushed and stuff. Whereas in Hoplomachus, you're like choosing which events you want to participate in, like as a like a free gladiator, basically. It's like, all right, I, I want to fight in this sport event. I want to fight in this challenge. You know what I mean? So both kind of match. But besides that, I've actually been, <laughs> even though this is not my usual thing, I've been doing a lot of Euros. So I played uh, Architects of the West Kingdom. That's the third one in the series and enjoyed that a bit. And then uh, the last two I'll mention, these are like two games that are both market, like economic Euros which I know is a big uh, thing that you like, uh, Peter. Yes. One is Excavation Earth, and the other one is Merchant's Cove. Excavation Earth delivered to backers a little while ago, but I don't think it's in retail yet. And Merchant's Cove is like delivering to backers, I think, right now. And Excavation Earth is a fine game. I had fun with it. My review is pretty positive. Man, it does not fare well when Merchant's Cove comes right afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> at least for me, at least for me, because I think Excavation Earth might have like slightly better kind of Euro mechanics in it. But Merchant's Cove, even in the base game, you have four completely different uh, kind of like people or factions you play as. And each of them has like their own mini games to create the stuff you're selling in the market. And for me, just like, you know me, I, I love exploring and like asymmetric factions and all that kind of stuff. So that definitely push it ahead. But they're, they're both solid games. I'll cover them both soon. But yeah, Merchant's Cove, uh, very cool. Especially, I, I will say, for both of them, the AI is a little bit on the easy side sometimes. But whereas Excavation Earth, I think, needs some variants to fix it, Merchant's Cove has an expansion with solo scenarios that really ramp up the challenge. So uh, neither one is the best out of the core box for solo difficulty, but at least Merchant's Cove has an option to kind of fix that. Nice. Well, I definitely look forward to trying one or both of those. And speaking of, we actually got together live. We're all vaccinated up. I forgot. We got together live and got to play some Pandemic Legacy Season Zero. Yeah, and it was it was pandemic. <laughs> no, 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 that, that's, that's being harsh. I, I'm not a huge fan of Pandemic. I do think there are some cool variations in Season Zero. The story is kind of interesting so far. It's like kind of Cold War uh, intrigue and spies and stuff. But we, we've only played the first two months, and, and anyone who's played any of the Pandemic Legacies knows that things tend to ramp up, what, Peter, like March or April, I would say? Yeah, there's going to be, I'm sure there's going to be a giant twist. They usually do it, yeah, the first three months in. But Mike's actually exaggerating. We have not played the first two months. We've played January and the prequel. 
Oh, I forgot. I forgot one of them was the. Oh, yes, we're we're really nowhere. Yeah, we're we literally just started. I'm gonna withhold any judgment, but it was certainly great to go to somebody else's house. Thank God for vaccines. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, and if you haven't done so, get get vaccinated. Yes, please. <laughs> And actually, just turns out, uh, they approved it for down to 12-year-olds, so my son Nicholas is going to get vaccinated here soon, too. So that'll be good. Then then we'll just have one in the household that's not vaccinated, the little one. Yeah, both of my kids are too young, at least for the current approvals, but we're just uh, doing the best we can. And hey, Peter, y- you know what could have happened if they had never developed a vaccine and, like, coronavirus has kept on getting worse and worse? A pandemic? A pandemic, uh, worse pandemic, maybe even leading to some kind of post-apocalypse where everyone is like driving cool, tricked out cars with like flamethrowers and machine guns and mutants, you know, like coronavirus mutants just wandering around. Well, and the funny thing is Waste Nights doesn't even, you know how they usually describe what happened to the apocalypse? Waste Nights takes, like, I don't know if you read the flavor text, but one paragraph in there, they just skip past all that. It's like, it wasn't this or this or this. We just basically got to an apocalypse. <laughs> I mean, it really, yeah, it was great. <laughs> it really hand waved it. It's like you know how you get to an apocalypse. Like I'm not going to bother explaining to you which one of these many ways. Just one day we found ourselves there. And by the way, waste nights. I I I really feel like this could have been like a, a hair metal band's name back in the '80s. You know, like yes, White Snake and Waste Nights at the Odeon. You know, or something like that would have been awesome. Nice. Well, I feel like they'd have to be playing in Australia, right? Because this entire game is set in the continent of Australia after it rips in half. Yeah, that's right. Across the Great Divide. Like, uh, Australia is now kind of two somewhat separate islands with, uh, like, a big river in between them. So uh, there's my coverage of the theme. So why don't you go ahead and cover (laughs) the mechanics? All right. So, yeah, this is a mostly cooperative. Uh, There are some solo scenarios and there are some competitive scenarios, but it's a scenarios-based game. And the majority of them are for two to four characters. Now, you could play multi-handed solo, but co-op is definitely like the biggest focus of the game. And this is uh, kind of like an adventure game. You are each controlling these uh, waste knights, these like knights of the wasteland, trying to bring order to the chaos. And uh, you move around this big map uh, driving because everyone has uh, a vehicle. You choose which one you want to have. You could have like a cool Harley or like a big Mack truck or whatever. And as you move around, you take these very quick turns. And depending on the scenario, you're usually trying to like reach these points of interest. And when you get to them, you go to this uh, scenario book and you read some paragraphs, like the flavor text discussion we're going to get into. And you'll often make some choices or have some skill tests. And there can be some like branches in what happens. And you're trying to win by completing whatever story you're playing in. But while you're doing it, uh, whenever you move, you might have combat. You can go to cities and like buy stuff. You can uh, take rest actions to heal. You can forage for more resources. Your character can get like gear and uh, upgrades. And uh, yeah, it's just uh, like kind of this fun freewheeling adventure game. And very, as Peter already noted, like very similar to kind of the Mad Max theme, especially being set in Australia. Very much reminiscent of Fallout and that series. And yeah, it's, it's just a rollicking adventure game. Now, you say you're trying to bring order out of the chaos, but I'm not exactly sure that's true. Well, it depends on the choices you make. Yeah, I think you might be trying to bring chaos to the chaos sometimes. Yeah, I mean, uh, or or just profit off of the chaos. Yeah, it really depends on the scenario and uh, whether you choose to be kind of good or bad or neutral or whatever. Absolutely. All right. So you want to get into our top five points? What we do here is we talk about the top five things we think you need to know about the game, starting with number five, which is our least important point, but obviously still important or it wouldn't be on the list, going up to number one, which we think is the most important point. 
And I will get us started off here. Oh my gosh, we forgot to thank our Patreon supporters. We did, we did. So, uh, yes, yeah, so we'd like to thank all of our supporters on Patreon and everyone who supports us by uh, subscribing to the YouTube channels, both the stream one and the non-streamed, or listens to this podcast, which I guess you do if you're hearing this. <laughs> but specifically our patrons, they uh, help us defray the cost of putting on the podcast, uh, buying new equipment, getting the games we cover, all that kind of stuff. So uh, this week, we'd like to thank Barack Wiley, a co-op lover, Jay Flartner, a co-op fan, and Michael Mannequin Hurdy, a co-op MVP, Barack, Jay, and Michael, thank you. And thanks to all of our patrons. We've been having some fun stuff, having you vote on games we cover, having you vote on like which faction I play in playthroughs. Uh, it's always great to have uh, conversations with our patrons on there. And, of course, with everyone in our Discord. You don't have to be a patron to join our Discord. That is open to everybody. We'd love to talk to you over there if you want to drop in. Cool. Well, let's get back to the review now. Back to the review. Let's start with our number five point. What's your number five, Peter? Mine is the car and knight combination. A lot of games have you choose a character at the beginning of the game and you get equipment or whatever skills based on whatever character you have. They certainly have that too. But the the added thing on top of it here, and I think they did this in not Buddy Cop, but what was the other Oh, yes. In Brook City, they did have like you would get and you would switch from car to car, kind of like Grand Theft Auto style. Yeah, that one you were switching cars. This one you do pick a car at the beginning, but it's interesting because you could pick different combos every single time and the cars do function differently. They have a different amount of movement. And a lot of what the game is, is there is a pretty good movement puzzle involved in like spending resources and stuff. I'll get to that at higher points. But The nice part is you can kind of pick a different combo and you'll get a different feel out of it because every night's going to feel different with different vehicles. So, you know, you can either have a favorite vehicle and pick different nights or have a favorite night and pick different vehicles just to change it up from game to game. Yeah, my number five hits on that a bit, too. Uh, It's focused on kind of the, the characters themselves and the upgrading. And yeah, first of all, just the fact that you get to pick a car is awesome. And, (laughs) you know, it's it's such a strong part of like the Mad Max franchise, which is one of my favorites, that I really like to see it in these post-apocalyptic games when they do this. So that's fun. But beyond that, the characters are very different. I think you have six in the core game, but they uh, sent us a review copy of like the Kickstarter edition. So we have, I don't know, like 12 and they each have uh, not only unique ability and different stats, so like they're better and worse at different things, which might uh, change how playing through the same scenario, how it winds up. But the other thing is they each have a unique deck of upgrade cards. And beyond that, you'll also be upgrading with a ton of different gear cards, and you won't see the same ones very often because it's a pretty thick deck. So that combo of like upgrading yourself and getting new gear and picking different knights and picking different cars, like Peter said, lots of variety, even if you want to play the exact same scenario again. Yeah. So my number four is this game is pretty accessible. It's pretty straightforward. Now, again, pros and cons here. So on your turn, you're basically taking two actions. You can move, you can, you know, if you're on a space with a quest token, you can do the quest there. If you're in a town, you can upgrade your gear, buy some stuff, sell some stuff. You can explore to get new items that kind of help you with the rest of the puzzle. You can rest and heal yourself up and like repair your armor and stuff like that. So there's a lot of different options, but they're pretty straightforward. And what you're doing is not very difficult on your turn. Now, the con to this is there's a lot of story that happens in between there. 
So it could seem like you're not doing a whole lot, and then there's a whole lot happening. But again, I'm going to cover that more later. But uh, it is very accessible. I mean, if somebody's running this game, you can certainly run it for even younger kids. If you're the one running it or, or inexperienced gamers, whatever else, anybody can play and do the actions. They're not, none of them are very challenging. So pretty accessible game, both for better and for worse. Man, you, you are headhunting one of my points with what you just said. So I'm just going to stay silent and, and save up. But uh, my number four is the setting and theme. And some of this is from the narrative that Peter mentioned and like these uh, kind of narrative passages and the choices you make. But a lot of it is also just like kind of the entire ambiance of what they've done. So again, this is like such an homage or, you know, (laughs) a plagiarism, whatever you want to call it, of Fallout and Mad Max. But I I personally like that. I I was disappointed by the Fantasy Flight Fallout game. Remember like the half a game we played of that, Peter? Or no, it wasn't very memorable. No, I don't remember that. (laughs) And I know that game's supposed to be better with, I think, the second expansion, Atomic Bonds, I think it's called. But, you know, whatever. The Waste Knight's second edition has great theme and a lot of fun gameplay right out of the gate compared to that one. But, yeah, like the scenarios, they, they offer you kind of these gray choices, which is a, a hallmark of a lot of these, like, adventure games and post-apocalypses. It's not all, like, obvious that you're working for the good guys or the bad guys. Everyone's a little bit bad. Uh, the factions they have are interesting and, like, kind of their competing interests. The split of Australia and how, like, the West and the East are portrayed. I thought the writing was good. Like, I, I thought it was a pretty enjoyable kind of narrative to experience. So, yeah, I really liked playing around in this world and kind of how the, the different scenarios gave me more backstory. Like by the end of playing five or six of them, I felt like I knew more of what was going on in this world. So I appreciate all of that as kind of like a story focused gamer, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I'll get into story in a little bit, but my number three is the resources. So there are three main resources in the game. I'll say four because your equipment is kind of resources as well. But as I mentioned earlier, you have fuel, you have ammo and you have uh, meds. And I just think it's interesting how they give you a puzzle with those resources and your actions. So kind of that combination of resources and actions. For me, it's a straight up pro. Like if you're moving, there's like a movement puzzle on the board. It's like, okay, I'm trying to get from here to here. I have five movement points and some terrain costs more than others, but it's not, it's not like this big flow chart or anything. It's like either it costs one or two or sometimes zero, right? Like, I mean, it's pretty straightforward as far as how much movement costs, but there's definitely different ways to move from place to place. And maybe I spend fuel to get a little bit of extra movement on my turn. So I just like how they use the resources to fuel the puzzles in the game. Okay, during combat, do I want to spend ammo to attack earlier and use this gun that might do more damage or maybe even less damage, but I still get to attack before them and maybe I'll defeat them before they get to go. So I just think every resource has a very interesting use to it and then getting them is interesting as well because it's like okay i got this really good gum but i got no ammo so now i have to explore so that just adds to the puzzle and choices that you have to make on your turn so for me the resources are one of the most interesting choices that you get on your turn is how to get those resources and how to use them yeah and a lot of the gear often they have a like breaking ability like break your gear to do this or break your gear to get plus one damage and when it's broken, it goes to this other side and you can like spend uh, your rest action or go to the town to fix it. So you get it back on its good side or sometimes gear will be destroyed forever if you use it on its weaker side. So now nah, I'm with you. I usually love resource management, so I'm kind of surprised I didn't put this on my list, but uh, I totally agree with everything you just said. 
I told you I had more than five points. That's why That's why it was hard. I, I had to combine some of these. You'll see. Yeah, no. <laughs> that, that one was definitely a, a, a key part of gameplay for me. Yeah, my number three kind of builds off the story thing. It's definitely related. And that's the uh, variety in the scenarios. This is mostly a pro for me because they did a nice job of having like branching options and branching choices in these uh, scenarios. So you're not going to get the full picture of this if you play the first kind of tutorial scenario, which is only solo. But even that one has uh, two different complete like adventures you can play. It's it's presented as one scenario, but you can play the North or the South and entirely different stuff happens in there. And on top of that, even within the North and the South, you're making like moral choices, fighting different enemies, fighting different bosses. But that's the most railroaded one. But then when you go into the other ones, you have uh, more choices of where to go. You can like succeed or fail and that'll change what happens. And again, pretty much every scenario has like two splits right at the beginning. And then you branch even more within there. And then you branch even more within there. So generally, I was very impressed with the scenario variety and the replay because this is like a game with, I don't know, I think uh, with the Kickstarter edition, at least I think it was like 10 scenarios or 11 scenarios. And you might look at that with it being so story focused, be like, well, I guess I'll get 10 plays out of that. But I, I didn't feel that way. Besides the variety in the characters, the scenarios themselves have a lot of like uh, branches and things that keep them interesting. Now, <laughs> that being said, I do want to give like two kind of caveats to this. Uh, first of all, and I'll talk about this a bit more later. In the end, a lot of them do boil down to go to this place and take an action and see what happens. Like as much as they are diverse in what's going on, and some of them do break that formula, a lot of them are using that same basic formula. And the other thing is you tend to still get to a similar ending point. Yes, there are variations and yes, there are different endings. But while like it's a bit free form and you can just kind of explore where you want to go in the like beginning and middle, by the end, you'll usually be somewhat pushed. Although I do want to say uh, this is totally in development, but apparently the designers have been working on an open world scenario or two. It's going to be like app driven. And I think it's getting close to being done. So that would be very cool to like even expand this more. But as it is with just the base game, I still think the scenarios are pretty dang good. Yeah, uh, I'm going to get to that. I mean, you're encompassing like I encompass like three of your points into one of mine coming up <laughs> at the end here, which is probably why it's so high on my list. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk more about that when we get to it. But my number two, I had actually written combat here, um, but I'm going to change it up and say this game is all about tests. Whether it's combat tests, whether it's testing a skill to to see if you get better at something, and it's just dice based. You know, you have a skill, like you might get two green dice, which are better than the white dice, or a green dice and a white dice, or whatever it is, to do that skill. But you're basically rolling and seeing what happens. There's not a lot of mitigation there. So there is a lot of swinginess and randomness. Now I'm gonna talk about it combat specifically, because I think this is the place it shines the best and gives you the most options. Because in combat, first of all, combat's only one round of combat, which is great. Because we all know these multiplayer games where you take the 10 rounds of combat yourself and it takes up the entire game and everybody else does like, I'm going to rest and get an explore action. Oh, I got a fuel. Okay, I'm done. (laughs) You know? Yeah, and then then watch Peter play like 15 minutes of combat in Tainted Grail. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So the nice part about combat is it's one round. It's nice and it's bad, right? Again, all my points, I think, are except for the the resources so far, all my points have kind of been could go either way. And I think this one is the same thing. It's going to be very swingy without a lot of mitigation. What that means is it's going to be quick. 
and you're going to get done with it. And you will probably get an interesting story at the end of it, one way or the other, whether you fail miserably or succeed greatly, there's going to be a story that comes out of that, right? So, so that's all good. Uh, combat's one round though. You attack them and you either kill them or you don't. If you don't kill them, you scare them off and they run away. They will damage you and you take that damage and you go on with it as you go forward. But a lot of times they'll give you good rewards. So I I like the fact that it's one round and I like the fact that that things are quick and easy to resolve. You just have this dice resolution system. Oh, okay. I roll two green dice and I need two successes or whatever. So all that makes it quick to go through and resolve. But it's also very swingy. There's going to be people that hate this, right? There's going to be people that hate like dice-like or whatever. And they're going to be like, well, I didn't have any agency in that and in that combat. There's a lot of cool puzzles with movement and stuff, but there's not a lot of cool puzzles, I don't think, inside of these challenges themselves. You you just roll the dice and kind of see what happens to you. And it either turns out really well or not. So it's a bit of a mix for me. I do like the combat. I like that it's one round, but if you're one short of killing the enemy you were going to kill and they were going to give you all this cool stuff to go forward with, it's kind of disappointing when you don't kill them in that one round. So it's a bit of a mix for me, but overall, I generally like the fact that things are quick to resolve, but I do think there are going to be people that hate the swinginess and, and the luck that's involved here. Yep. So what's your number one, Peter? Oh, was that your number two? Oh, that, that was one, like every single thing you said was my number two. I, I have literally, okay, I have one thing to add, one thing to add. Some characters and some gear you can get gives you more interesting choices and mitigation in combat. Like there's one character that I think can damage themselves to get plus one hit so you can like get that final like little oomph. And I kind of wish they had like maybe made that a more universal thing. Like maybe you had some reroll tokens of some limited capacity, you can get them back or you could spend like ammo to get a reroll or something. But uh, as it is, a lot of that is character and gear dependent. So by the middle or end of the game, you'll tend to get some mitigation. But yeah, the, the, the all or nothing kind of potential swinginess that Peter's mentioning can definitely rear its head hard, especially early on. Uh, just like Peter, I still ended up overall positive about it. And I think it's fun and quick. But yeah, it's going to make some people angry, especially at the beginning of the game. Well, there is gear that is called fully auto, I think, is the skill where you have to spend an ammo to re-roll. That's exactly what it is. But I don't think there's that much of that gear. Like I saw one piece in like three games. Yeah, everything is dependent on what you get right now, like in terms of mitigation. There is no consistency to it. Right. All right. Well, why don't you do your number one since I stole the thunder on that one? (laughs) Well, uh, this is the one. This is going back to like your number four, but I guess it just hit me a little bit harder. And that is uh, kind of the accessibility and potentially the simplicity of the actions. And I kind of combine this with uh, the potential for downtime. So this is me, I guess, throwing a couple of things together. So to first of all, amplify what Peter already said, the game is so straightforward, so quick to teach. Movement is a fun little puzzle. The other actions are quick. Combat takes like a moment. So I think uh, the game is very clean and player turns generally tend to be very, very fast. Like when I played this with my son, it was like bam, 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 back and forth. No problem at all. But the potential negative of that is that I think, especially with uh, a lot of the scenarios, like I said, kind of being just sort of move to this point, then move to that point, then move to that point and have adventures. There can sometimes be a sameness to the actions. It's like, I'll move and then I'll fight. I'll move and then I'll heal. I'll uh, scavenge and then I'll go to that city. Like it's almost so straightforward that without the story, it might be a little too simplistic. I think with the story, it's fine. Uh, The other potential negative, and this uh, is kind of connecting to stories. I know Peter's about to talk about this, but uh, even though I didn't play a four player game, I can imagine 
that even though the turns are very fast, the turns are interrupted by narrative. You know, like I'll go to a place, it'll take me 10 seconds to have my combat, but then I have like a three paragraph narrative to read for the location I'm at. So this is going to be very group dependent for me, for me and my son, it was no problem at all for us to like read, you know, he can read a little bit. So I had him read a little bit, but mostly I would read and I would take out the stuff that was maybe a little too uh, (laughs) violent for him. And you know, like that, that was fine for us. We were into it. But if you're in like a four person group, and someone's just not into hearing flavor text and not into hearing the story. They should never play this game. If you play with somebody who's not into flavor text or story, do not play this game. Yeah, they will because hate it. <laughs> that is all this game is. <laughs> it's good. It's going to feel like, well, no, it's not all this game is. I think the actions and like the resources and stuff are great. Like, I, and I really enjoy the combat. I think the game's got a lot of cool mechanics. But yeah, like, like you'll, you'll take a five second turn. And then they'll have to sit there and hear somebody reading something for five minutes. Well, that's an exaggeration, but you know, like a minute or two. So yeah, if you don't want to hear a story, the downtime at three or four players is going to feel horrific to you. But if you're into the story, it's, you know, you're all having kind of this fun shared experience together. I think it'll be great. So this is, I guess, mixed. For me, it was totally fine. I liked the quick actions and the narrative like did not feel like downtime to us. But for some groups, it totally will. Yeah, so you, you've guessed my number one. And actually, I phrased it a little differently. And I phrased it the same way I phrased it for one other game, which was, I don't remember if it was, Man- I think it was Mansons of Madness is I phrased it this way. And my number one is, it feels like you are playing a movie more than playing a game to me. And I feel like if you like it in Mansions of Madness or in Journeys of Middle Earth, you'll probably like it here. If you don't like those games, I don't know that there's much that separates this game from those. Now, there's a lot more story in this. But I still feel like you're kind of taking simple actions. You're doing some things. There are choices there for sure. But they're not. You could win making all the wrong choices and you can lose, quote unquote, making all the right choices. Right. I I don't know that your choices have that much impact on the end result or as much of an impact as your dice rolls and things like that. Now, with that being said, the story is really good. And like Mike said, there's a lot of branches to it and there's a lot of different things. And if you play it two or three times, I feel like you would want to do the opposite thing you did the first time just so you could feel the whole story. And there's like hundreds and hundreds of story passages in this book. Like it's ridiculous, maybe thousands. So there's a lot of narrative. And when you take an action, it's interesting. It'll say, okay, read story 101. And then it says, go to story 327. And if you make this choice, go to story 269. And the one thing I did have a problem with with the story of the game is I had a hard time following it when I was playing solo. Because in the middle there, it might say, gain two resources and this and that. And then I'm like okay, where was I in the book? Because, you know, there's like 10 stories per page. It's like, okay, I got to read through, you know, skim through all these to figure out where I even was in the book again after I do like some gameplay elements in the middle and then you're reading more story and then it's like, go to this one again. And it's like, wait, was it 321 or was it 323 I was supposed to go to? You know, it it just, as a solo player, I was getting lost in it. When I played it multiplayer, it wasn't as much of a problem because you have the other person reading. Although I played with my kids and my kids are lazy, so they didn't want to read. I, I did all the reading anyway. So yeah, I mean, I had a hard time keeping up with where I was sometimes because in the middle of the story, they would have you do stuff, which was great. It definitely felt like it impacted stuff or whatever. But because it's in a storybook and you're jumping and again, there's like five or six paragraphs per page, I definitely had a hard time keeping up sometimes. So the story is great. But for me, it was all about the story. I know Mike said there was a lot of interesting choices. I did find the some of the puzzles cool, especially the movement puzzles. 
But honestly, I, I did feel like a lot of times it just came down to your dice rolls. And, you know, maybe that's me just not having played enough or whatever else. So there's certain missions where you have some stuff really close to you and some stuff really far away. And like all of them give you rewards. And maybe the, the closer ones are harder to get. So it's like that's the negative of them being close. So you want to go to the further ones because they're easier to get. But either way, if I roll lucky on those close ones, I may succeed at the mission in like 10 seconds. And then I don't need to go to the further ones. Certainly the further ones would help me do better. But when I get back to the end, it's going to be just a bunch of dice rolls to determine what happens anyway. And again, without a lot of mitigation, I don't know. The story's great. Don't get me wrong. I am very mixed on this game. You could probably hear it because I'm back and forth. I like a lot of the things about it. But to me, it, it felt like I was along for the ride. I wasn't driving the car. Yeah, I mean, I get the feeling that was not my experience at all. And I would definitely, for, for the two games you compared it to, I would much more put this in the Journeys in Middle Earth kind of camp where you have some options of where to go and you have like some interesting like things to consider on your turn. Whereas Mansions of Madness, I think like you just move around and stuff happens. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's still very fun. It's super thematic. But I would put this more in the Journeys in Middle Earth where it is a game with a lot of story. Whereas Mansions of Madness just feels like you said, like kind of a, a movie that you're playing along with. And yeah, I mean, I, I didn't have any of the storybook problems, but I, I think if you're like me, I, I guess I'm kind of getting into final thoughts here. Yeah, absolutely. That's where we're at. Yes. Yeah, so, so if you're like me and you like choose your own adventures, this has a lot of the DNA of that in there. And I think you're going to like really have a good time with this because this is, there are a lot of games that have choose your own adventure elements in them, or like the choose your own adventure with some gameplay added on. This one, I found the gameplay both very fast and pretty fun while still getting me that choose-your-own-adventure like narrative kick I was looking for. Uh, to compare it to a game that's probably better, Sleeping Gods. Sleeping Gods is like more ambitious and like crazy huge and also had a really fun narrative. But I honestly would probably rather play Waste Nights, even though, again, Sleeping Gods is maybe the better design, because Waste Nights is more accessible so I feel like there's much less busy work to get to the fun narrative. Whereas Sleeping Gods, like I had to manage like nine people and go back to the ship every turn and all this stuff. And I just wanted to like read cool narrative passages and have like make fun choices and have stuff happen. So yeah, if you like narrative games, if you don't mind reading some paragraphs, if your group is going to get into that, if you like choose your own adventure books, uh, if you like the theme, if you like wanted Fallout to be to feel more like the Fallout video games and you, like me, kind of felt like Fantasy Flight dropped the ball on that and did not really capture that as well as they could have, I think this one could be a big winner. But, <laughs> you know, if you don't like swinginess, there's a lot. If you don't like kind of going along for a narrative ride to an extent, if you don't want to read a lot, like all those things are definitely going to put this off for you. So, uh, you know, make sure you're ready for kind of all of those going in. Yeah, I mean, my final thoughts are almost identical, except from my perspective, I didn't want to read as much as I had to in this game. I agree, it is a choose-your-own-adventure where you're getting to make cool choices throughout. I wish there was some kind of an app that would have guided me through that. Yeah. People are different about that. They don't want the app. But for me, if I could just listen to the narrative or even read it in an app, and then I didn't have to find the next thing, I just clicked on my choice and it put me to the next paragraph, rather than having to look in a book of paragraphs that would have made it better for me. But certainly if somebody had been reading it to me, I would have enjoyed it a lot better personally. But that's, I mean, look, if you've been on the stream channel, you know, I'm not the strongest reader in the world. People make fun of me all the time. They're like, no, that says area, not arena, idiot. I'm like, okay, all right. I put an extra N in there. Like, <laughs> So, I mean, for me, who's not the strongest reader, it, it definitely 
provided some challenges to gameplay. Yeah, and I'm curious, because again, I've heard this app is coming. That's a big focus is that it's going to give this open world-like gameplay. But it seems like it would be an easy thing to just put in all the tech. Well, maybe it's not easy at all. But <laughs> if they could put in all the text, that you would just like key in 207. You wouldn't have to turn the book. You wouldn't have to keep track of which page you're on. You wouldn't lose your place on the page. Like even if they didn't have narration, I think that would be definitely a nice quality of life upgrade in playing the game, you know? Absolutely. But I mean, I think from hearing this review, you know whether you're more on the mic camp and you don't mind the story and you actually want the story. And I like the story. That's the thing. I mean, you talked about Sleeping Gods versus this. I haven't played Sleeping Gods yet, but I imagine the story here with the post-apocalyptic theme is going to be more up your alley. And I mean, I love the theme. I love the stories that came out of it. Just after a while, I wanted to drive my own choices a little bit more than it was given to me. And I did get reading fatigue after a while. All right, so that's uh, Waste Nights, and both of us had a lot to say about flavor text, so let's get into our design discussion. We have only done a little bit of flavor text in our designs. Uh, Dark Dealings, our competitive and soloable card game, that one had like a little flavor text intro, but then the rest was basically just like tactical card play. And uh, Salvation Road, I think I wrote bios, like biographies for each of the 16 characters in the game. And there's like little flavor text blurbs on the like encounter cards. But we have certainly never in any of our published games done like big paragraphs. Now we have uh, we have a dungeon crawler ish kind of game that we're pitching around that is very much a campaign game with like long passages of reading. But I mean, how we did it, Peter. Well, why don't you describe how we did it? I don't want to be the only one talking <laughs> at the beginning. Yeah, well. W- yeah, we did a, more of a story deck, and that's what we're calling it. And we've actually got that in two of our games where the story comes from the deck, not from the book. And it's diff- it's interesting because playing Gloomhaven with their campaign book where you're like flipping it open and the story's in there, I think that's a good way to do it. And, and even there, they do a pretty good job of like when you open the door with a one on it, it tells you to read section one, but not read it until then. I think that's certainly a good way to do it, um, but people can accidentally look ahead or whatever else in those situations the way we do it is we have a deck of cards where you're actually reading one side of the card and then it might say flip it over it might say grab this other card and so you're getting the story through that and at least from my mind and and maybe it's because we designed it ourselves and we've played it so many times at this point but it's easier not to get lost because you have one card in front of you at a time or maybe you have two but like one of them's been hanging out for a while and it doesn't have any flavor on it it just has some rules stuff And then the other one's giving you the flavor. So for me, I kind of like the way we've done it there, obviously, or we would have chosen something different if if it wasn't our preferred method. I I don't know. I'm, you know, me with reading, I'm hit or miss. And it's funny because again, if you watch a stream channel, I'm the one who always insists on reading all the flavor text on everything. But I think also you could lose some story if you don't read the flavor text. And so it's hard to determine as a designer how much to actually put in. Well, yeah, and I guess uh, we're kind of hitting on the first point that I thought we should discuss, which is like, where should your flavor text be? Because, you know, there are some games like uh, Waste Nights, for example, if if they had a card for every one of those uh, events, (laughs) how many cards would that be? Like you said, Peter, probably like a thousand cards added to the game. Well, it depends how branching it is too, right? Because it would be more annoying to go, okay, grab card 107 or whatever else. I I guess a game that does that is, I mean, you mentioned Tainted Grail, but the other one, Seventh Continent. Wait, I was going to say Seventh Continent has like a thousand cards and they're all divided by like hundreds. And 
Yeah, I mean, uh, you're not really going there for paragraphs. It's like for the actual things you encounter and the places you go to. But flipping through like 50 cards in like this 100 set to try to find the one card. I don't know. Personally, I found I think I find that more annoying than flipping through a book to find a paragraph number. Well, I guess it depends how linear it is, right? Because that's the one part about the game we're designing. You know, there are different ways to do this. Some people like branching stories. But what I found a lot of times, especially if it is a campaign, you're going to end up branching back to where you started anyway. You're going to like you you have a line, a straight line down the middle, which is where the story is. And you may follow that line and you may go north of it for a bit and come back down south to get to the same point or go south and then come back north to get to the same point of that story. But the bottom line is no matter which path you take, you're still getting to the same point. So the bottom line is I prefer myself to have a more linear story so I know that I'm getting the same story as somebody else. So think about Waste Nights as a perfect example. Maybe you and I played that same mission and we played it in a different way. And it's hard for us to talk about it because I don't then want to spoil like, hey, did you play mission one? Yeah, I played mission one. Well, it, it's hard for us to talk about it. And I talk about something that's completely different than your experience with the game. Now, maybe I've ruined your experience going into it. It's almost like I'm spoiling the other story for you, but maybe you never get to it. So I don't know. I, I like people to have a shared experience with board games, and that way they can talk about their experience afterwards. So it, I, I've gone a long way around to say, I think it depends how linear you want your narrative to be. And I prefer more linear narratives so I can have a shared experience with people. Well, yeah, and I think one of the points you were trying to make with that is that like in a book or in a deck of cards, if the narrative is more linear, you're usually going to be able to like control the numbers you go to. So right. a book that's like read one, now read two. And oh, look at that. It's right under one. Now pick three or four. Oh, look, there's four. It's right on the next page. I think that's going to be a much easier like, you know, logistics experience. Uh, and just like the same thing with a deck of cards controlling the narrative, it's like card one and then card two or three. That's very different from something like Seventh Continent where it's like card 10. Now get card 837. Now get card 422. Right. <laughs> you know? right. Which also presents like annoyances in returning those cards, uh, you know, like back to the deck, depending on like how you kind of get them out and how long they stay in play. Yeah. So, so I, I like Peter very much like kind of card based narrative. We've seen this, uh, besides our own designs, we've seen this in Arkham Horror 3rd Edition, in Bloodborne, that's a recent one we covered, you know, where you have like a paragraph or two, or like a small paragraph of flavor text for this card, and then it also has like a mechanical implication. But Peter, <laughs> since you're the one who likes reading less, like how do you feel just in general about like having to read four paragraphs or like an entire page before you get back to like the actual gameplay? Well, it depends on how much narrative there is to gameplay to me. So something like Waste Nights, it swung too hard narrative for me. Uh, and I think that's why you like the game a lot more than I did. I liked it. Don't get me wrong. But I didn't love it. It wasn't the game I wanted to keep going back to and keep playing over and over because I felt like my turns were and maybe I was making great decisions. I mean, it was hard for me to say because by the time I got back to more decisions, it was like half hour later after reading all this paragraphs of text. I'm exaggerating, of course. But for me, it was too much. It's funny. Sometimes you talk about in cooperative games, like your amount of gameplay versus the AI amount of gameplay. And the AI didn't really have turns and waste nights, really. It's after you move, you have an encounter. But beside that, you know, and every once in a while when the time track hit certain spots, certain things would happen. But really, it was just a timer on the game. The AI, there wasn't a whole lot to do, but it felt like 
the downtime and the time that you weren't doing stuff was very high because it was a lot of reading time. And so for me, I prefer my gameplay decision time to be higher than the amount of flavor. I don't mind flavor in there. And I think uh, something I want to get back to, remind me later, is the card-based narrative and how it limits how much narrative you can have in the game. And I like that. So let's get back to that point later. But to finish this discussion, for me, I want more gameplay and decisions than I want narrative. But that's a personal preference. Well, I mean, I, I think it can be dangerous to break up the pacing of a game too much. You know, and I, and I think Waste Nights, like you said, that it does kind of dip into that sometimes. See, I feel it's the opposite in Waste Nights. I feel like the gameplay is dipping into the narrative time, right? Like, I feel like it's mostly narrative and you, you do make choices every once in a while. For, for those who have not watched my playthrough, in like the larger scenarios in most of them, you'll go two or three turns before you get to another story point. And then you'll read and make a choice for like a little while. And then you'll get back to like playing for two or three or four turns before you get to another story point. So <laughs> I don't want to like exaggerate to the point where people think like you're like just reading a novel the entire time. Um, it tends to be broken up, especially in the longer scenarios. But yeah, like I'm trying to think of an example because I don't think re- I don't really think Waste Nights does this. But there are games where like you'll uh, Solomon Kane, Solomon Kane that I just covered. That one is basically a book game. Like you just have to kind of like deal with that being the case. But you might like do like one minute of things. You will have to find like two new cards and read what happened on them. And then you'll uh, do one round of combat and it'll force you to draw three combat cards and you'll read a little flavor text on them and they'll each do things. So I, I do think designers have to be careful of what the pacing is. And, and like you said, Peter, maybe it's better if you want to get that strong narrative to have them read like that one page at the beginning of the mission and then just let them get into the gameplay and not like interrupt it with theme or have the theme be quick like a game in Bloodborne where it's just like a few sentences and bam, you're back in. Actually, I got a perfect example of where if you do it, I think the narrative would get in way of the gameplay. And that is Deep Madness, one of my favorite games, you know, one of my favorite dungeon crawlers we've talked about. You know, there are these cards that come up that just give you a little boon or a little, uh, I think they're negative ones too. Oh if my I remember gosh. Correctly. I forgot about these. <laughs> remember the six point font? And oh like my this gosh. Giant like i mean it's a card but it's like a tarot size card with like six point font with all this narrative on it all this narrative on it at the bottom to just like get plus one something or or subtract one i mean we literally never read them and if i did i think i would not like the game as much but yeah i mean there's all this story in there and maybe it would be great i don't know but i never use them but yes that that for me was would have been a step too far yeah, and, and let me tell the people who have not played uh, Deep Madness, uh, but no video games, exactly what they were going for here. I don't know if you've played many like uh, story-based first-person shooters, Peter, um, especially like more modern ones, but they love to have uh, audio logs. You ever played a game with that, where like you'll you'll pick up like an audio log from a character, or, like Borderlands? But yeah, but Border well, Borderlands is more like dialogue. Like they're actually there talking to you. I'm talking about like uh, something like Dead Space or. Uh, like like a game where like you're the only survivor, but you're going through like where people got killed and you're hearing the stories of the scientists or Horizon Zero Dawn had a lot of this too. Uh, and that's totally what they're going for. Like these are supposed to be journals of the people who were there before you and got killed. And they're supposed to fill in like all the like interesting narrative of what happened on this base. 
but yeah, like, <laughs> like Peter said, like literally you'll like be doing the, this innocuous thing. You'll get this thing and unlocks a memory and you'll draw this card. And it's like two pages worth of text on this one card for like this tiny effect. So I, I love the idea of working journals in, but it was such a jarring thing to like actually consider reading this while playing the game. So Great example, Peter. I totally forgot those cards even existed because, like you said, because we, we just, never read them. We never read a single. I, I think I read one. And I was like, "This is stupid." <laughs> <laughs> well, and especially because the effect it might have something to do with what the journal was. I don't know. I literally never read one of those cards. Like on the bottom, it's like get plus two, whatever. Because when you make text that small and that much text on one card in the middle of a game that is not very story-based at all. Like you get a little narrative at the beginning, like you said, and then you're just playing and fighting this tactical combat game. I do not want to stop for five minutes to read this entire two-page essay. I mean, here's what I can totally imagine happened. They had this person who was like really gung-ho. They're like, man, I've, I've plotted out this whole novel about like the previous team and wrote like just reams and reams of stuff. And then the design team is like, yeah, we don't really know where to put this. Uh, we got these cards that have really make negative effects. Let's uh, we're just gonna shrink this down to a four point font, and we're gonna shove it on there. Okay, and you're just gonna yes. deal with it. <laughs> you know, like make make that guy or girl happy. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I, yes, there are times where it can break up things, and here here's the point of that: your game can't be dependent on people reading the flavor text, right? If I don't read the flavor text and I lose out on something, I think that's a problem. Right. If I don't get the theme or if I don't, I mean, I guess maybe not even the theme, right? Because if I don't get the theme, that's on me because I didn't read the flavor text, depending on how long it is. But I think if you're putting clues into what people should do, Pandemic Legacy Season 2, right? There were clues in the flavor text, but if you didn't pick up on them or if you didn't get that card or whatever else, you weren't getting the clues, right? So I think sometimes you can put too much gameplay in the flavor text. And you're assuming that people are going to be 100% invested in that flavor text. And, you know, there are just times where people get distracted or whatever else and they miss something. And you don't want to miss the whole story because of that. You don't want it to be an unrecoverable thing. So I would say even if you do have clues in the flavor text, you better have more than one clue. Or imagine that Mansion of the Madness game we played, right? Uh, oh, no, you weren't part of that. It was me, TC, and Jerry were playing Mansions of Madness once. And it was like, oh, you better hurry up. You better hurry up. And it did give us plenty of clues. But then all of a sudden, it's like, well, you ran out of time and you lost. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> like, So if you're going to give people clues, you better make it explicit that those flavor text clues are also gameplay clues. <laughs> well, yeah, and I was going to say that's sort of a separate issue. Uh, I get annoyed with Mansions of Madness and with Journeys in Middle Earth. Because they they obfuscate, they hide from the player key information that a regular board game would tell you. You know, like a regular board game would be like, there are six turns left before you lose. And Mansions of Madness, you know, in my opinion, gets kind of cute with it. And they're like, oh, time's running short. I'm like, what does that mean? In gameplay terms. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and yeah, Journeys of Middle Earth did kind of the same thing with like how the points were ticked up on like the enemy, like threat track, if I remember correctly, something like that. No, they, they're very clear about that. Now, maybe they weren't always, but pretty early on in that game, they told you how quickly it was going to go up. It's like two points per character and one point per arm. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah. Like, like, better, like I mean, that's, that's always been there, but it, you, if you miss it, you don't know what's coming. But no, it's pretty clear about when that's coming. But yes, Mansion of Madness is a great example. They don't tell you at all. But yeah, and I think the point you were making, Peter, about how important is it to read the flavor text and do you expect your players to read the flavor text? 
I think that also could be an argument for like shorter text on cards, like we talked about, or longer text in a books like uh, book like Waste Nights, because Waste Nights they know that they are basically forcing you to read the text. Like I can't really imagine like turning to the book and being like, "All right, whatever, whatever, whatever." Oh, I get one fuel. Like <laughs> I can't really see myself doing that in this type of game, like Waste Nights Second Edition, but. You know, the flavor text on something like, uh, again, Bloodborne. I've been playing that a lot recently. I'm going to read it because I like the theme, but it doesn't really matter much. And it's pretty short. So I can see people totally skipping over that. So I guess you have to consider like how committed you are to your players reading the flavor text. I I think it's fine if you want to say in your head that I want them all to read it. But then you might want to think of like what medium is going to most ensure that they actually are likely to see it and some players aren't going to want to. So, you know, you're, (laughs) you can't control uh, how people experience your own game, you know? Absolutely. But by the way, I did think of another example, Peter, aftermath. Do you remember how aftermath you'd be playing the mission and then they'd be like, Hey, by the way, here's a one page uh, story about humans before they (laughs) vanished in like, (laughs) yeah, they do the flashbacks or whatever. Yeah. And I I thought those were fine because they were kind of interesting. They were kind of fun, but also you could 100% skip over them with zero effect because they didn't even like feature your characters except for a few of them. They were just like these random flashbacks. (laughs) Well, in some games like Detective did that too. The problem I had with Detective and their flavor text was because it's a detective crime solving thing, I thought there might be something, some kind of clue in those. And there just wasn't, right? Oh, Detective I despise because there was sometimes. You'd have like nine cards that would describe how you were drinking your coffee before you got your forensics data returned. And then you'd have one card that like after they talked about the coffee had some really important points. So you had to read all the cards, but they were so inane in a lot of cases. I like some things about Detective, by the way. I'm not like saying Detective is some horrible game, but I think it's pretty well documented that a lot of people were not fans of uh, how the flavor text was handled in that one. Yeah. All right. So, I mean, we've gone to a lot of places, I think, in a short amount of time. Oh, the one thing I wanted to get back to was cards and the amount of text that can be put on cards. I think the nice part about doing card-based stories is that you're limited to, as long as you're not changing your font size or making it really small font size, right? Or saying, oh, I'm just going to use four cards for this part of the story, right? Where you have a storybook and you can make some really long story cards. I think the nice part about our card-based narratives and our story deck has been that it is a constraining point for us. We have to make our story this long. So that way you're, you're putting constraints on yourself. So that way you're not going away with the story too far. Yeah, and maybe some people won't like that. Maybe, maybe they won't like the constraints. Some designers or some like writers want to get their full vision of the flavor text out there. And I think that's fine. You know, I, I write a little bit. I, I think that could be a great thing if that's the game you want to do. But I also talk to a lot of people on like our Discord and on YouTube and stuff who are like, why would I play this when I can read a novel and it's a way better story <laughs> than anything you're going to write in your board game? <laughs> and I think that's a fair point. E- even the best writing I've seen in board games, to name a few recently, I really like Waste Nights. I really like Sleeping Gods. Like I think they had well done narratives. Like None of them are as good as a book. Just like no Choose Your Own Adventure I've ever played the draw there is the choose your own adventure and like kind of the, the choice aspect of it. The draw is not that I'm seeing the greatest book. Or if you look at a, you know, choice based video games that have a cinematic feel like uh, the, the telltale games before they went under like the walking dead game they did as great as that was, it was not as good as the best like episodes of walking dead. It was just like this game thing kind of adding on to narrative. So 
if you really want to tell a story and that's your entire thing, I would just say go write a book. But if you still want to like gamify it, you know, more power to you. Try your best. <laughs> right. I mean, I, there's definitely advantages. Obviously, you as a fan of them see the advantages of the gamifying of them. But my one designer advice after all of this would be I don't want personally the story to be more than the game. If that's the case, call it a choose your own adventure, make it a book, make it whatever. But I shouldn't be reading for 30 minutes and playing for five. All right. Well, I think it's a good place to leave it. So Waste Night Second Edition, uh, you know, I, I think a cautious maybe recommend from Peter. And for me, I really, really enjoyed it. But like Peter said, hopefully we painted <laughs> the picture of why you might hate it if you're a certain type of gamer. And yeah, uh, if you're going to do flavor text, maybe don't. If you want Peter to play your game, maybe do less. <laughs> I like flavor text. Marvel Champions has a perfect amount. Everybody's like, oh, I want more story in Marvel Champions. I'm like, no, that like one paragraph at the beginning of each thing is perfect for me. That's all I want. Yes, but uh, I would like to have a good amount of flavor text. But personally, as much as I really liked Waste Nights and that flavor text, I probably still like card base better. Like uh, Arkham Horror LCG is another good example, I think, of quick flavor text. Get some fun stuff. It doesn't happen too often, right, Peter? Like whenever you yep. advance the actor or the agenda, then you get like a little dump of flavor text and something immediately happens mechanically. And maybe maybe that'll be my final kind of point here. In an ideal world, I think any big dump of flavor text should have an impact, an immediate impact on gameplay in some way. You know what I mean? And beyond yeah. like I just got like one piece of wood. Like I think it should right. be a, an interesting impact on gameplay. If I'm reading like three paragraphs just because you want to get some like exposition out at me, there's better, more like user friendly ways, I think, to communicate that in a quicker fashion. Like like I think Arkham LCG, where like every time you have a major thing, like a new monster comes out or, oh my gosh, now the place is on fire. Like I think they really do a nice job of having dynamic mechanics tied to major changes and like dumps of flavor text, you know? Yeah, no, Absolutely. So I think we covered that pretty well this week. And it's funny because we've had similar discussions in the past, but each time we're, we're uncovering more and more. And I think that's one of the cool part about our design discussions. And that's why we started this to begin with, is it really helps us suss out our own thoughts on this as well. But we're not the only ones that matter, right? So come join us in the Discord. As Mike said, it's absolutely free. Let us know your thoughts. We have a podcast section. Let us know what you think about this design discussion. Let us know what you think about narrative text. Do you like a lot of narrative? Do you like not very much narrative? Does it depend on the game? So uh, come join us for great discussions over there. Yeah, and, and let us know which games did it the best. Uh, like I've heard near and far, maybe it kind of interrupted the gameplay and the gameplay itself wasn't the best, but I've heard it has like really, really great narrative stuff in there. So tell us which uh, cool ones we should check out. All right. Well, thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week with another top five list. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us again for the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. Also, join us for games and discussion on our Discord channel. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash one stop or leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and we'll see you next week for another top five list. Nice. So, but hey, uh, Peter, what, what have you been... Okay, go for I it. The I was doing the exact same transition you were doing. <laughs> hey, Mike. Yeah, yeah. I think we avoided another apocalypse. Dude, I'm so happy because mutant overlords, I'm kind of ready, but I'm not 100% there yet. 
Yeah, no, thank goodness for vaccinations. <laughs> Get vaccinated, everybody. <laughs>